I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Nathan Kotkamp. He's an ethics lawyer and the founder of National Healthcare Decisions Day. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Hey, Nathan. Hey, good morning. How are you? Doing wonderful. So I really do appreciate you joining us today, and we're getting ready to talk a little bit about National Healthcare Decisions Day. So I want people to know you a little bit, though, how you kind of, I I guess, fell into this or just happened upon this. But how did you find yourself interested in health law? Um, I found myself in health law when I went to undergrad thinking I was going to be a pediatrician when I grew up, got to organic chemistry and had to change some plans a little bit. Um, And then I actually fell in love with ethics. Um, And I went to grad school. I went to the University of Pittsburgh um, because they had a joint degree in bioethics and law. And they also had at the time one of the very first health law certificate programs. And so I did the health law certificate program and uh, determined that I really liked the law a lot. Um, I still like the ethics stuff, but um, with the the focus on healthcare, um, I ended up taking the law route instead of the ethics route. But one of the very first things that I did when I got into practice was to join several hospital ethics committees. And that's really what uh, got me into the issue of advanced care planning um, because so many of the the topics and the cases that we saw on the ethics committees were related to lack of advanced care planning. So you sat on these ethic committees. So what are the things that you saw that were like, man, if they had advanced care planning done, this probably might not be an issue. What were the, some of the things that you, you saw? Well, the, I mean, the single most common issue is just a patient that doesn't have an advanced directive at all. And so then we're trying to figure out, first of all, who are the, the right decision makers? Um, I was at an ethics committee meeting this morning. It was a complex situation where there was a, a patient who had uh, put her son up for adoption years ago, but they had rekindled their relationship. Um, there was a friend who was not a family member, and there was a second cousin. And so, you know, the legal issues of does a uh, a son, a biological son who's lost all of his, uh, you know, rights due to an adoption have any say in the decisions about this woman? And what about a second cousin? And that's that's pretty far removed, but technically permitted under Virginia law. And, you know, it's, it's messes like that that easily bit could have been cleared up if someone had said prior to her going into cardiac surgery, <laughs> hey, something might possibly go wrong. You're going into cardiac surgery. Um, let's make sure at a minimum you've got this cast of characters involved in your life, which is wonderful, which one of them is actually supposed to be your decision maker. And so, you know, it's like missed opportunities that are just so aggravating and I see them all the time. Um, the other is, you know, the, the patients who just simply roll into the hospital and they're already incapable of making, uh, decisions for themselves. They don't have an advanced directive. Um, 
which is about 75% of the population at a baseline anyway. But more often than not, these are not patients who are just rolling into the hospital because of some freak accident. Most of the time, these are people who've had some sort of chronic issue. They've had interactions with, with the healthcare system on numerous, numerous occasions. And again, it's like, it is so frustrating. How come nobody raised the issue? Yes, actually, you do have cancer. and We're going to fight this cancer as hard as we can. But have you at least thought about who makes decisions for you if you have a bad reaction to your chemotherapy and you're unconscious for two days? That doesn't mean we're giving up on the fight for cancer. But let's be practical here. And so those are the things that we'd see over and over and over and over again uh, on the ethics committee. The other is, is simply the, the person who just doesn't have any family. And then, uh, then we get into issues about guardianship and all the rest of the mess that comes along with that, when in many cases, most people have at least somebody. What is amazing going through this whole advanced care planning and discovering my own wishes at end of life and putting some things into uh, legal documents, I mean, it gets confusing, events care planning, events directives. So help me, what is the most important or what does define advanced care planning? Well, advanced care planning is itself let's just be clear, it's a process because it's, there's no one single thing. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about advanced directives, but those are a sheet of paper that are supposed to be the written documentation of a conversation or a collection of conversations that take place um, ideally over time and sort of evolve. But it all starts with a conversation. It's got to start with conversation. Um, you know, that's the other thing we'd see in the ethics committee sometimes is someone who would bring in an advanced directive and you're like, great, we have an advanced directive. So we call the person who is identified as the um, authorized decision maker and they say, what are you talking about? I have no idea what that person wanted. And what did you? Yeah, I, they didn't exactly. even tell me they were naming <laughs> me as an agent. So that's not a good that's not a good scene. Um, but really. And I have no clue what they would even want. But now is the person making that exactly. could be responsible for exactly. making decisions. Now, I, I will. I will say, um, sort of as a caveat, that I think in those kinds of situations, I still am happier to know that we're dealing with the person that the patient chose as the right decision maker, because my gut, and I have no way to prove this at all. There's, I mean, it's just pure gut, is that that person simply by being named by the patient was probably for one cosmic reason or another is the right person to make decisions for that individual, even if they never had a conversation about it. And my guess is that the vast majority of the time that person probably will make what you would consider at the end of the day in hindsight to be the right decision. So name somebody if you, if, if, if you have to, but that's not the right way to do it. The right way to do it is you think a little bit, then you gather people or pick up the phone and you say, hey, I'm thinking about my advanced care plan. If there's ever a situation in which I can't speak for myself, um, I need someone who's going to be able to stand in my shoes and speak up on my behalf. Are you willing to do that? And that's, that's a critically important question um, because there's a lot of people that, frankly, they, they know themselves well enough to say, look, I'll be by your bedside. I'll be holding your hand. I'll be praying with you. I'll be doing whatever it is that, that you need me to do. But don't ask me to make decisions for you when you're in the hospital because I know I, I, I just I break down. So people tend to know that about themselves. So all the more reason to 
to ask, are you willing to be my decision maker? Another one that people struggle with is when they've got multiple children and they feel like they need to be, you know, name all their children as equal decision makers. It's a mess. Please don't do it. Ask your children. And it's amazing. Most of the time, they know who's the right person, whether it's the person who is physically closest to the, the person because they, they live in the same town, or it's just the person who throughout childhood and, and adulthood is just the closest to mom or dad. And, and that's okay. And, and nobody's upset about that. It's like, of course, we're going to, you know, we'll talk with our sister about what she's going to make decisions for with, with mom, but don't, you know, don't name all of us because we know our sister's going to be there and it's the right choice to make. So in thinking about these sorts of things, um, and then, you know, the conversation doesn't have to be hypermedical. In fact, I, I think sometimes people get bogged down in thinking that they're supposed to come up with some sort of like cookbook for what do I do if I have cancer or if I have a stroke or, if, you know, there's a question about a feeding tube or this or that. Look, I've never met anybody with a crystal ball. You don't know what's going to happen. But what's m much more important is to try and get some basic values and, you know, core beliefs set forth. So that when it comes time to apply decisions to the specifics of somebody's medical condition, we can make a choice about, is it the right thing to do to put somebody on a feeding tube? Is it the right thing to amputate a limb? Um, well, let me, let me think. Ma Mom said that the very most important thing to her in life is being able to talk and communicate um, with her loved ones. And we know that this feeding tube that they're proposing would require her to be permanently unconscious. Well, then that's contrary to mom's wishes. We, we didn't even have to have a, a specific medical discussion, but we know that a core value is being able to communicate. So we might look at a different option, but we know that that option is not consistent with what her wishes would be. So that's the conversation. It should evolve over time. It should probably be revisited on some regular basis. Um, and then the advanced directive piece of it is putting it in writing. And um, one of the things that makes this whole issue just extra complicated is that we don't have a, a, uh, a federal rule. We have 50 state different laws, and most of them are generally the same, but there are free forms or free documents available in every single state. The simplest, easiest way to get a free form is go to your hospital. They have to have them by law. But you can go to nhdd.org, which is the National Healthcare Decisions Day website. We've got links to all sorts of different resources, all free, that can be downloaded. And the key is just make sure that you follow the instructions to be sure that it's legally valid. And the, the, those legal requirements differ in all the 50 states. Some require certain witnesses, certain kinds of witnesses. Some of them prohibit certain individuals from being your witness. And that's disappointing. Why can't all of us get on the same page when it comes to advanced care planning? I, I understand states need their own opinions, but I don't just live and breathe in North Carolina and you don't live and breathe in Virginia. I mean, we cross state lines all the time. How can we have some common language so it's not so confusing? I dream of that day and I'll tell you, it's really frustrating. Uh, this is a good time to, to mention that there is um, in every state that I'm aware of, a reciprocity rule. So if you 
are traveling, if you've got access to your advanced directive, this is a good reason to have it out in a, you know, electronic portal where you can pull it from wherever, make a PDF, stick it in your email, send it to people so you can get it wherever you are. Um, but if you end up in a different state, it should be honored. Now, one of the things that gets frustrating, you mentioned North Carolina, um, <laughs> we have a lot of uh, North Carolina is, is, is awful. So if any North Carolina uh, representatives are on this, um, please consider easing up your, uh, your, your rules. North Carolina requires a notary, which in and of itself is a huge impediment to people, family members, uh, Healthcare providers, even employees of healthcare providers, are prohibited from being the witnesses for these things. I mean, it is so hard to make an advanced directive, and, and I just don't, I don't quite understand it. But one of the things, one of the implications of that is that, that the rules are so strict in, in North Carolina. We have a lot of patients who live on on our southern border in Virginia, and they 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 get their care at, at hospitals in North Carolina, and and I every year I get calls with complaints that Virginia advanced directives are being rejected because they don't have a notary. And I'm like, look, they don't need a notary. They were executed in Virginia. You have a reciprocity statute in North Carolina. You know, you should know that you should be honoring these things. So it just takes extra effort to like track down the case manager who goes and checks with the hospital attorney. And then they realize, Oh yes, you're right. It is a valid advanced directive, but I mean, there's no reason, there's no logical reason for all the differences. So I, before we get to, you know, what, what you did because of all this confusion, creating a day, um, this national healthcare decisions day, tell me, tell me this, um, tell me some of the experiences that you've seen, um, that they didn't have an advanced care planning or the directive and they're in the hospital in an acute setting. What, what happens when you can't speak for yourself and no one else is speaking for you or there's confusion or family dynamics over what the wishes are? What happens? It's a mess. It is. It's, it's oftentimes time consuming. It's oftentimes expensive in terms of both time and staff, um, Money and, and t uh, staff time that's just, frankly, it's wasted on getting to the bottom of the decision-making issues. Um, I, I've seen families not exactly come to blows, but pretty darn close. I've had people come up to me at public presentations that I've done who've said that years later, I mean decades later, they are still... Um, really concerned about whether they made the right decision for mom or dad. Well, I also believe that there's a lot of education about advanced care planning happening um, because of a day that you created, April 16th, um, National Healthcare Decisions Day. It's become a movement. So tell me, how did you come up with April 16th and why one specific day? The evolution of it, actually, and the evolution is important, too, because um, I talked about how Advanced care planning is this conversation. So when I was a really young and even more naive uh, attorney, I realized that there's actually a provision in the CMS regulations for all hospitals that requires them to do public education about advanced care planning, about advanced directives. My hospital clients weren't doing it. The, the competitors across town weren't doing it. I knew that nobody around the state was really taking it seriously. And so... Um, back in 2006, 
I proposed to the um, to the Bar Association in Virginia. I said, why don't we have a compliance day? You know, like legal compliance day. It's you know so simple and it's just you know so pure. It's great. We will have a legal compliance day so that everyone can meet the the, the requirements of the regulation. We'll call it Virginia Advanced Directives Day. Every hospital in the state, you'll have a pair of people from the ethics committee because it takes two witnesses and we'll have a stack of documents. And, you know, it was really this document focused Virginia Advanced Directives Day. Um, and believe it or not, we actually did get 100 percent participation by the hospitals in Virginia, in large part because we got a, a governor's proclamation and everybody wanted to be on board. We repeated that feat the second year, and then we had a smattering of other organizations involved nursing homes and physicians' offices and law firms and things like that. But I had a choice at that point. I mean, I already had you, you don't you can't get better than one hundred percent on the hospitals. Um, it's like herding cats to try and get assisted living facilities and nursing homes and things like that. So I could have spent all my time focused in Virginia, but instead, I said, look, we've got a, we've got a model that works. Um, we have a, a single compliance day. It's generated public interest. We got a bunch of media attention, governor's proclamation. I'm just going to take. I'm going to see what I can do to take this nationwide. And so I I literally just picked up the phone and I called and I said to the I would call the president of the American Medical Association and the American Bar Association, their Nurses Association and NHPCO and AARP. And I said, here's what we've done in Virginia. We've proven it can work. You want to join me on a national initiative. And I was in the right place. I was at the right time. I was a neutral party. Uh, There were initiatives of this sort that had been tried and failed in part because everyone sort of comes with a, a little bit of bias. So if the doctors had called the, the hospital association, they would have thought something's up, you know. But here's this 30-something attorney with no stake in the game other than I've already done it in Virginia. It seems like a good idea. Um, so we convened a meeting. We decided we were going to go for it. We weren't going to get let perfect be the end of, the, of, of good. And um, we just – we went for it. And the reason it's April 16, it's the day after tax day. And we were inspired by the, uh, the, the quip from, uh, Ben Franklin that nothing in life is certain, but death and taxes. And we thought, well, if nothing else, it's easy to remember. Um, you know, it gives a, a possible media hook, something to do, something to be quippy about and, and try and make it a little bit lighter if, if that's what you want to do with it. Um, and for, for, uh, 12 years, we had no problems with that date because it like slotted perfectly between um, between Easter and the Jewish holidays. And of course, we come to our 10th year, which is this year, and April 16 falls on Easter Sunday. So we're taking a slightly different approach this year, and um, we are actually making it a week-long celebration. So it starts on April 16, that's the kickoff, but it's going to run all the way through Saturday. And um, so it really, it's, it, I mean, there's, there's no prescription about how organizations or individuals need to participate in it. And it's, it's, it's wide open and, and we've given lots of time to celebrate the fact that we're now 10 years on. Um, we've literally reached millions of people in one way or another with this initiative. We've got thousands of organizations on board, hundreds of national organizations on board. Um, and it's really for a lot of 
uh, organizations become sort of a, a, an institution at this point. It's something that they look forward to. Uh, we've had community events. We've had, you know, run walks. We've had town hall meetings. We've had, I mean, it's you name it. There's so much creativity. It's a, a big reason. I think you're the big reason for this. Is January 1st, 2016, CMS decided to go ahead and provide reimbursement to for physicians and billing under advanced care planning. That was a huge, huge step. It, has that increased awareness, or has that has that? Where do you what do you feel about that, or how is it going? Yeah, it certainly hasn't hurt. That's for sure. We've proven that the uh, the whole death panels um, flap that that was you know causing a stir during political issues that had nothing to do with death panels um, was a complete myth. I have not heard any reports sky is falling, people are being forced to or um, coerced into creating advanced directives that do one thing or another because of the payment issue. I think the reality is that those Physicians that were already doing advanced planning are simply benefiting because they're now getting paid for it. Um, I, I haven't heard either anecdotally or, or even seen reports that physicians are coming out of the woodwork and, and now doing uh, all the all that advanced care planning that they, they weren't doing before because they didn't get the $95 of reimbursement that they're, they're now entitled to. Um, you know, it, it, it is reimbursement, but it's not like a huge bag of money. One thing that I would love your opinion on is there's some hospitals really, you know, scanning these advanced care planning documents into their medical record, which sort of hippifies certain things. So what are the pros and cons of that? I, I mean, I think it's great to scan them in as long as they're accessible. There are major, major medical systems um, and again, I won't name names that I am very well aware they scan the document. And if you are discharged today, you reenter the hospital tomorrow. Staff cannot get the advance directive from yesterday. What? It's ludicrous. So that's something that hospital administrators and contractors need to demand of the, the uh, EHR, EMR, whatever you want to call it, electronic health records vendors to make these things easy to get and they can't be buried in some electronic file that takes 500 clicks to go find this thing in some archive they need to be available um if they are available then it's fantastic because then you don't have to you know you you are required to ask at every admission but you can ask in a way that says hey we've got your advance directed let's pull it up hey is this all still current is the is the address the same is the contact information the same are the people that you named as your agent still alive it's a conversation starter absolutely it's just something so you know i i think it's great to be able to have it in red in electronic records as long as it's usable so you recently um became what is it, a partner or affiliated with the Conversation Project? Well, how are you guys working together? So one of the little dirty secrets about National Healthcare Decisions Day is it's really just me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I feel a little bit like the, uh, the, the Wizard of Oz, you know. Um, <laughs> but there is some truth to that. And, and we've had um, some wonderful support from volunteers on, on our website. But really, 
my role has been to be a cheerleader. Uh, and that monthly message that I send every month on the 16th uh, has, has, has merely been my way of just kindling and keeping this fire going. Um, but one guy can't do it enough. I'm an attorney in a big law firm with a full-time practice. I've got young kids. I don't have the resources. We don't have a staff. Um, I don't have the resources to help NHDD grow the way that it should. Um, the Conversation Project is an awesome organization. They don't come at this with any particular um, bias, at least none that I'm aware of. Their interest is simply encouraging people to have conversations in the same way that I don't care what kind of conversation you have. I don't care what choice you make. There's no agenda with the kind of choices that people make with respect to National Healthcare Decisions Day. So in that sense, we were very, very much perfectly aligned. Um, and so they are now helping us to maintain our website, send out our monthly messages. They are just helping us to grow. And, and they're also up in Boston, so they got access to a bunch of eager um, uh, students who hopefully can help us with some outreach and some creative uh, initiatives and, and social media and all those things that, that, that we need. I mean, we're already huge uh, with no budget and no staff, but we have the chance to really, really make this um, a massive initiative. And um, I really do think that the Conversation Project is a perfect partner in, in helping us do that. Well, they're, they're an organization that came from a personal experience that is passionate about education and resources, and I, I believe in the Conversation Project, absolutely. Nathan, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time today. I know you're a busy guy, and but I can also say uh, just a heartfelt thank you for what you've done for end of life, for advanced care planning. Um, many, many, many people have um, been affected by this movement and changed how and where they die because of it. And it came from you, one person with an idea, with passion behind it. So I really do appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks. It's one of those uh, things that you sort of don't realize what you're creating when you get into it. Um, and that might have been a good thing. <laughs> it, it, it was. I, 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 I'm very thankful for um, whatever measure of ignorance I had going into this, because if I knew how much work it was going to be, I'm not sure if it would, if it would exist. But it is a labor of love. And I'm thrilled to be able to participate in uh, conversations like this. And, um, and again, it's, it's open to everyone. And it, it really isn't just a one-day event. Um, the National Healthcare Decisions Day website, I say it again, nhdd.org, it's available all throughout the year. The resources are all free. Use them however you please. There's no copyright on anything. Just take it, run with it, do something, do something amazing, and then tell me about it so I can tell others to do the same and help us replicate it. Um, there's so much work to be done. Well, I appreciate your time. And Nathan, be well, and we'll talk soon. Thank you much. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.